Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Samantha Kemp. She had a previous career with Cushman and Wakefield, as well as PwC, and was a portfolio manager at Blackstone. She is on the committee of the Investment Property Forum and was also the co-president of Women in Business Club at the London School of Business. Since 2017, however, she's been better known for her role as the Chief Investment Officer and co-founder of IMO, a company that brings institutional investment into the single family home sector. So welcome, Samantha. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, so I guess to start with, it would be interesting to get an idea of a, a bit about your background and how you kind of came to co-found and become the CIO of IMO and what IMO does. Yeah, sure. Of course. So pre-IMO, my background was all, all very corporate. I did about 12, 13 years in corporate sort of real estate world, as, as you pointed out already. And then I left, I decided I was going to leave the corporate world and I went to do my MBA at London Business School, very much with the intention of doing something more entrepreneurial. And it was when I was there through various networks, I met one of our founding investors and also Christian, who is our CEO and one of my co-founders for IMO. And we really sort of came up with the with the idea initially. They my my co-founders been looking much more at the real estate tech models that were happening in the US. So there's a very big company called Open Door, which is very much buy direct from consumer, fix and flip type of model, um, and was looking at how to do something similar in, in Europe. But we didn't really like the balance sheet risk of that model and thought there was something, you know, something else that could be done that was probably a bit more interesting as well. And that's where I brought my institutional background to the table where already five years ago there, were, there was huge amounts of capital being allocated by the institutions to the residential space and already I could see that it didn't really make a lot of sense that they were only targeting build to rents and multifamily stock especially in the UK it was very much just build to rents PRS schemes and to me that made no sense because people were allocating to residential ultimately for the low risk stable income profile that residential provides and build to rent is the complete opposite it's high development risk and no income for many years so it already made no sense to me that people were allocating to resi but then had really no options and that's where we we really brought the two ideas together we thought if we can develop technology along the value chain of residential, how can we unlock this asset class to be able to source assets, underwrite them, renovate them, uh, lease and manage them on behalf of institutions and aggregate and sort of scale up these portfolios to volumes that institutions would find attractive. So that's, that's how we came about with the idea of IMO. It really is unlocking the biggest asset class in the world for institutions. As I said, historically, institutions have only really been sourcing or targeting built to rent or multifamily. 
And the reality is that makes up less than 2% of the resi market. Well, it's, it's even less than 2% if you look at completed ones. That's just what's in development as well. So it's, it's yeah. a tiny, tiny market. It is a tiny market and it makes no sense when there's so much capital being allocated and they're all chasing the same 2% end of the market. So for us, it was about removing the inefficiencies that exist within the remaining 98% of the market, which have historically prevented people from accessing that, uh, investors from accessing that space at scale. So yeah, so we, we've developed a technology along the value chain to remove all of those inefficiencies that exist with traditional manual processes and thereby unlocking what is the biggest asset class in the world for institutions. Fantastic. And I mean, you said loads of interesting bits there that I kind of want to want to pick up on. Um, just starting with your, kind of your background and doing your MBA, how how vital was that? Because I know a lot of people kind of put almost as much emphasis on when they do an MBA, certainly in, in business, is about the network that you get as well as kind of obviously the, the education side of it. How big was that for you? It sounds like yeah, it was, it was twofold. And it's funny because in, within the real estate space, there's, you know, MBAs aren't really that popular within the real estate space in the same way they are within consulting or, or banking or, you know, sort of private equity. But yeah, so I, what I benefited the most from my MBA, it was, it was, it was two things, really. It was having the headspace to reassess and think about what I really wanted to be doing next. And it was also, you know, from an educational perspective, it was very much about sort of retraining my brain of how to look at business, how to look at challenges, how to, you know, think about leadership, um, all of those topics, which traditionally don't really get focused upon at all in the, in the sort of corporate, when, when you're going through kind of the corporate machine. So that, that was really vital. And then it was absolutely the networks, as you suggested, you know, they, you know, they've just opened up so many, whether it's just, you know, so many more friends that I now have who come from such interesting parts of the world and, and different sectors and backgrounds to yeah the professional networks that I've also developed. And yeah, like I said, I, our founding investor was actually an alumni of LBS and I, I met him through the LBS networks. So yeah, I, don't think I would be doing IMO today if it wasn't for my MBA. Brilliant. And I mean, you, we talked, you talked about obviously the bill to rent market. Um, and we said it's a, it's a small fraction of that total kind of asset class of residential in the UK. Are you seeing that a lot of now fixed income institutional money is, is looking for a, for a new home for their fixed income and residential is taking that up? And that's the allure really for for some of those institutions is that what you're kind of seeing and yeah yeah no yeah absolutely is it coming from that fixed income market then would you say yeah it's coming from sort of the pension funds insurance fund world where by their very nature they are focused on low risk stable you know guaranteed income essentially so yeah we're seeing a lot more cap a lot more of that type of capital flowing towards residential and then you're also seeing of course then the investment managers are all starting to adjust their allocations as well i think just a few years ago um, you know you would residential was barely on people's allocation strategies you know you might have an allocation towards student housing but there definitely wasn't any broader sort of housing allocations and and now, for many institutions, it's a minimum 20%. 
of their allocations. And, and there's some institutions that we work with where it's actually increased even 50% of their allocations are towards housing. And obviously housing is very broad, right? It's not just, it's not just single family resi. It's, it, is, it does have the built to rent, built to rent element. It does have, you know, it's got senior housing, it's got co-living, it's got student housing. It is very broad, but yeah, I think in the, the increase in, in single family resi in the US has been really helpful and people have been looking over to the states and seeing how successful that's been and how that really has grown as an asset class and seeing that that wave is is going to, is going to be it's going to start coming to europe as well absolutely i mean i was going to touch on that in in terms of kind of the us is it's always seen as a bit more of a mature market certainly compared to the uk but even even compared to europe as well in terms of kind of how it's a bit more fast moving and, and things like that and they've they've adopted this and i think there's a, a stat that 48 percent of property portfolios so institutional pro- property portfolios in the us like you say now have 48 percent of their holdings are in alternatives of which residential is is an alternative asset class in in property and and Obviously, the, the main the main beneficiaries of the alternatives have been logistics and and residential, so beds and sheds, really. Um, so I I can't see any other way than kind of Europe starting to follow that, and also uh, the UK. Would you, would you kind of agree with that, or, or do you think we're still quite a quite a way behind that? I think we are behind it, but it's it's coming. I think. Logistics is definitely further ahead in Europe than than residential. That's been going now, and that's very established for for several years. I think residential has been slower just because you know the the majority of the opportunities were either built to rent, which is obviously you know very slow. You have to find your land. You have to go through planning. There's not sort of just huge. Readily available. Start to even get the first bit of income on average. Exactly, exactly. And then multifamily, and you know, there, there's been an active multifamily market in Europe for several years, but it is still relatively small. You know, either like for example, in Germany, you've got large listed companies that own huge amounts of the multifamily markets. Or what you often find is actually a lot of a lot of multifamily is is owned by families, sort of high net worth families, family offices in in the cities, and they don't really trade very much at all. So the amount of multifamily transactions actually happening in sort of strong good markets across Europe is is relatively relatively low. And, and uh, that's really interesting in itself because you've got this massive kind of shift in in their portfolios where residential has increased but there's been next to no transactions um to show it which which must be difficult to kind of get values on um and and things like that which i I find quite interesting Mm. Um, i think kind of going um going back to kind of what you said about what what imo's doing um going into that single family sector and getting institutional money into that typically the reason, in my mind, and I'm, you might be able to correct me, um, that institutions have gone after the build to rent is, is because they can kind of do it at scale and buy up I mean, yeah. 300 units at, at one time. Is that, has that been typically the barrier to um, institutions getting into single family homes because it's quite difficult to buy at scale? And if so, is, 
what is it that IMO is doing to, to resolve that, I guess? Yeah, so it's, it's twofold. It's definitely buying at scale. It's, um, you know, as I mentioned before, using traditional manual processes, it's, I mean, trying to buy 300 individual units is, um, is, is very painful. And then to manage it as well, it's not just the, it's not just the aggregation of those units, it's the management of those units. And um, a lot of people understandably um, have real issues understanding how you can, um, how you can make dispersed granular residential management efficient. <clears throat> and of course it's completely inefficient when you don't use technology. Um, but that's where we've developed the technology across across the entire value chain. And just to give an example of how the technology works at the sourcing end, um, so we have a direct consumer um, model as well, where people can come onto our website and they can um, register to um, potentially sell their home to us. We also have um, technology set up, which is um, essentially scraping all of the leads um, off the listing portals every single night um, and then we also have um, direct partnerships with with various agents and, and brokers who who send us leads directly now what that does is the technology allows us to bring all of those leads together and like i said the majority of the volume is coming from the listing platforms and that's literally thousands of leads coming in every single night and you cannot manually copy and paste um, you know, all the details of, um, from a website uh, for thousands of units um, every, single, every single night. So all of that's coming through. We're, set, we're instantly filtering um, against our property investment parameters. Um, so whatever our, our buy boxes or our target requirements are. We're also automatically running our AVM models, our automated valuation models that we've developed to um, identify which properties might also potentially meet uh, one of our investors' target returns. So all of that, um, all of the technology essentially allows us to take thousands of leads and shortlist them and prioritize them into, um, you know, a much shorter list that our um, customer success teams can then follow up with the next day to book inspections. Those inspections then take place. We've developed our own inspection app that allows us to gather about over 250 data points, um, identifying things, you know, basic things like the size of the property, the number of rooms. But then as soon as you combine that with, for example, the ceiling height, you can automatically calculate the surface area of the walls and then the amount of paint required. Um, to and, and obviously that's just one line item. It's just one line item in the renovation budget. But you can see how you can automatically calculate all the various line items um, in your in your renovation um, budgets. So all of that information is flowing into our underwrite models. Um, our underwrite models they started life in Excel and they've now been digitized. Um, and they are as comprehensive and in depth as any um, you know commercial real estate underwrite model that you know any of the big private equity firms will be running and um, why that's really important is it's important to us it's not not just to us but also to our jv uh, partners that we work with that it isn't just a black box um avm algorithm that's just sort of spitting out a number and no one has any idea how that number actually came about um it, it means that you would have to be a hundred and 50% relying on the technology to be getting it right. Um, so 
all of our underwrites are incredibly transparent. Um, you know, we're creating a sort of, I think it's almost a 10 page document, underwrite document off the back of it, which gives full details um, of all the calculations that have gone into the, um, all the assumptions, um, all the inputs, all the outputs, all the cash flow simulations, all the sensitivities, all the comps that have been identified from a pre-renovation basis, a post-renovation basis, you know. So it's very, very comprehensive and, and that allows us to have a full audit trail um, which meets all of our institutional governance standards. So you can see all of, all of that is not possible without technology sort of automating. Um, as much of it as possible. On the underwrite side, about 80 to 90% of that is automated. There is still um, an acquisition manager, an investment expert, sort of assessing the underwrite and checking it and making sure that it's okay. But you can see that 80, 90% of their role has been automated. So they're actually able to only focus on the real value add um, parts of, of the process. So yeah, so that's just just at the sourcing end, you can see how the technology allows us to um, essentially comb through the entire market and really cherry pick and identify the deals that will meet um, investors' return, return requirements. Hello everyone, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between six and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again, for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. 
and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Really, really interesting because as, as, as someone who does all these things manually, <laughs> I can see the absolute value in it because typically we, we source from all the same things that, that you're mentioning, agents, going direct to consumer, uh, we buy portfolios, we do build to rent on a smaller scale as well. Um, and it is, it's just the, the amount of time that goes into that, just that stage that you've been doing, yeah. that due diligence stage is, is, well, it's soul destroying really, isn't it? Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I could absolutely see huge amounts of, of value there. Um, so what is IMO? Is it, is it a technology company or is it an asset management company? So we are a tech company operating in the real estate category. Is that tech valuation? Well, no, I mean, but it's, 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 it's not just that, right? It's really important that it's tech is at our core. It's, that, it's a, your it's, assets, I guess, is your... Is your um... Yeah, but it's also a mindset and a culture thing as well, right? It's, um, it's very much our first approach to everything is tech first, data first. Yeah. Um, it's about having a mindset of making the impossible possible. It's not, it's, it's thinking that, you know, maybe not tomorrow, but in time, technology can probably do the majority of the things that we, we find incredibly frustrating. And we, you know, we don't, can't seem to figure out a solution for in, without technology. Um, it's the same way, I mean, I compare it to Amazon. They're a retailer, but ultimately they're a tech company operating within the retail category. The things that they've done for the retail category has transformed and led the way that the retail industry operates. Um, they are not, I don't know, a Walmart or a Tesco's that's then created an online offering. Sure. Um, they've approached it from a tech-first perspective, and that's, um, you know, that's that's I think how we're approaching it as well. Everything is tech-first, data-first, um, but within the real estate category. So what's interesting also is that for the for the for quite a few months, um, if not maybe even the first year, I was probably one of the only real estate, uh, you know, people within the business. Um, where it was mostly uh, product people, technology people, people coming from marketing backgrounds or FMCG backgrounds. Um, and yeah, it, it was only sort of once, we we're probably about a year in, then we really started investing in uh, bringing in more real estate people. And we've got phenomenal real estate people in the business, like real sort of fantastic experts coming from like AEW, um, BlackRock, Goldman's, um, you name it. So we've really got fantastic um, real estate people, but the majority of the people in the business are not real estate. Um, and so I guess from, from my point of view, when I kind of look at a business like yours and go, well, what's the difference between kind of uh, putting it in that basket of tech versus an asset manager? It's really about when I, when I think of tech companies like Amazons and, 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 and yourselves, it's about understanding that focus on growth and efficiency. 
yeah. rather than just managing what you've got. It's it's how can we how can we grow at scale but continue to do that and and excellent yeah. Absolutely. So it's about working with real estate experts. So we have, you know, whether it's on the pure investment side or, you know, we have a lot of real estate experts on the ground in our operational teams. Um, but then it's making sure that they are sufficiently supported um, by people focusing on business operations, business analytics, technology, products. Um, yeah. So data scientists. It's making sure that we're building everything to support um, the real estate operations um, to make them as efficient as possible. And going back then to single family homes as, a, as, a, as an asset class, really, what, what do you feel most kind of institutional investors miss um, when ignoring single family homes? Sorry, do you mind? So what do they miss the most? Yeah. What, 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 do you think what do you think they're missing out on, really, when, when not looking at single family homes? I mean, they're missing out on... Well, especially going into, um, you know, this sort of environment we are at the moment where there's so much uncertainty and volatility, um, you know, they're missing out on being able to allocate capital to what is the most core, low risk end of the real estate market. Um, statistically speaking, when you have so many assets, granular dispersed assets, you've statistically diversified away your asset specific risk. Yeah, the idiosyncratic risks are kind of gone, aren't they? Exactly. So all you're left with is a macro, a macro risk. So by allocating to SFR, mm -hmm. you're essentially, you know, you have obviously your country risk, and maybe if you're allocating to London or Oxford, you know, you've got Oxford risk or yeah. London, but you haven't got um, you know, the risk of uh, is someone else going to build a massive, another massive uh, built to rent scheme opposite me, or, you know, both going to compete with my scheme, but also create huge disruption. Is there going to be a massive airport suddenly constructed behind, or, you know, you don't have any of that location or asset specific risks that you do with multifamily. Um, so yeah, you, you really are getting the most stable income stream um, that you can get. And also, all these assets are not competing with one another. If you've got 300 units in a, in a single block, they're, they're essentially competing with one another the entire time. Um, whereas, yeah, you're creating a portfolio that's highly complementary um, and, and yet yeah, doesn't have that same competitive sort of um, element to it. I guess the, um, the kind of the throwback to that from a, from a bill to rent point of view might be that the operational costs in a 300 uh, no unit scheme may be lower because logistically it's all there. You benefit from economies of scale. Whereas if you've got yeah. 300 units kind of from Timbuktu down to the wherever, it, it, it makes <clears throat> that operational side of things maybe a little bit more difficult. Would, would yeah, I think um, people have misconceptions about how scattered these portfolios are. It's not one asset in Birmingham, <laughs> two assets in London, three assets in Bristol, something like it's not. It's you you focus on a on a on a city and its commuter belt, and then you deploy and acquire hundreds of assets um, within that within that market. So um, you're not, you know, from a geographic perspective, you're not sort of running all over the place. Um, everything we do as well, we 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 acquire vacant and then we do renovations day one. So we are you know standardizing. Um, yeah. 
we're standardizing everything at that point and then minimizing future maintenance or, or capex requirements um, and it also it's really important that every assets during the due diligence phase up front we are assessing it extremely thoroughly to understand whether there would be potential future management headaches and if we identify any red flags we um we withdraw from the process um, and that's i think again part of the beauty of sfrs when you're able to screen thousands and thousands of opportunities every single week you are cherry picking the assets that you think not only will give you the best returns but also the most stable income but also you know that will be the most uh, you know most efficient from a management or maintenance perspective absolutely because at the end of the day it's long-term income isn't it so if you've got the choice between kind of i don't know a, a cheap shower uh tray that's made of plastic or a stone one although the cheap one might be half the price it's going to cost you more in the long run over the next kind of 10 years as it cracks three times and causes damage so yeah absolutely and i think one of the other challenges of um of build to rent is the is the locations they're often in so um you know we are we're acquiring assets in existing communities and existing neighborhoods so where it's proven people already want to live um you know they're living near their friends near their family it, and, and we're providing a better quality home than the rubbish that's typically on the mom and pop um you know buy to lets um market so what so, we're doing is we're, we're offering a better quality home where people already want to live it shouldn't be that if someone wants a better quality home they have to move to a new build scheme that's maybe halfway across town um away from their existing friends and family so you know the the stickiness of from a tenant perspective or resident perspective that we're able to offer them good quality homes where they already want to live in their existing communities um you know it means that they're not you know they have those they have those emotional and personal bonds and ties to those areas already um so tenant you know your your churn rates also um should be much lower as well typically also another challenge of built to rent is to make the numbers even stack up in the first place you're having to charge premium rents um it always shocks me when you know if you go to some of these residential conferences and people are proudly displaying that the bill to rent rents are at a whatever percent premium to the market and um you know i mean great but a that's not well, the, market, yeah. the market is the market the market is the mass right to do something premium is is by very nature there is lower scale and lower volume of that and what's also interesting in the states what they've seen there is that people who pay more premium rents, they likely churn a lot faster as well. They're renting a lot more out of choice and because they have flexibility to move all over the place. Whereas the, the kind of the more the mass markets who, like, who are paying market rents, um, they're the ones who, you know, they find a home, they really want to be there because they're near their friends and family they maybe manage to get their kids into the local good state school they're in a catchment you know it's really important for them to stay there the stickiness of those residents is a lot higher as well i couldn't agree more um and and, and you put it very well like the bill to rent the best year they're going to have the best performance year will always be the first year of occupation 
um, because they've got those premium rents, because it's a new build and all those things. And, and like you say, it's like the person, everyone's got a friend who has to have the latest gadget and things yeah. like that. And it's the same with housing, that they're going to be far more transient. Suddenly your operational cost, because you've got someone moving, someone who would have been happy with, I don't know, the uh, a stain on the wall, um, suddenly moves now that's not just costing you tenant turnover costs with marketing and things like that. it's also costing maintenance that wouldn't have really been there because now you've got to compete with everything else that's new onto the market so correct yeah totally totally agree on, on, on that side of things um, you mentioned kind of the typical mum and pop landlords I guess we should touch on on kind of the the PRS in, in general at the moment, what are your thoughts about how that's moving? Clearly, kind of with all the legislation, I can't remember whether it's about 200 pieces of legislation now to rent out a property, there's tax issues. Do you think this government's plan of making kind of um, landlording in the UK, and I hate that term, um, do you think it's kind of working as they're, they're trying to make this a more kind of commercial corporate experience? Um, what, what, what do you think is happening with the PRS and where, where do you think those trends are going? Yeah, um, I think, well, I think they're definitely trying to make it harder for people to own um, second home, like investment properties. Um, I'm not sure whether that's, um, to try to professionalize the rental sector or whether that's actually to try to um, artificially force more kind of owner occupier. Um, it's probably for a, for votes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and what, what, what I always find funny, you know, if people want to, you know, Okay, there's there's affordability constraints. Definitely, that's not going to change overnight. Um, by you know, and that I, I don't ever see that ultimately changing unless house prices in the UK massively fall. Actually, and it's not even just a UK thing, right? This is a global thing. So, house prices across the world would need to massively fall, or wages would need to massively rise. And obviously, we're going. You know, we, we know that inflation is is incredibly painful as we're we're, we're starting to experience. So that's that's not a good thing either um so and i think especially with the younger generations um you know the concept of renting and having the flexibility if you want to to be able to move and you know maybe in five years time you you know you're earning more in your career you want to upgrade your property you know being able to move to another you know a slightly larger property um is is really attractive you don't want to have to pay the stamp duty every single time um so I, I find it yeah i think definitely if people want to own i think it's it's great that there are schemes out there to facilitate and help people um in terms of what you're saying about making it more difficult for the mom and pop landlords i don't think it's a bad thing though to be making it more difficult for them because generally the quality of housing stock that the mom and pop landlords offer is is terrible and obviously there's exceptions to that right and there's the, there are there are some landlords who care greatly about um you know providing a great home for their residents but a lot of them don't um or they don't know how to 
right? So maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't just say they don't care, right? A lot of them do care, but they don't know how to. They're not professional, um, professional um, landlords. Um, yeah, they're not professional landlords. They don't themselves have the efficiencies of scale. Um, when it comes to knowing how to smartly renovate a property or they don't have the, you know, the, the network of um, contractors to be able to quickly send out um, to, you know, fix, fix tap or fix the boiler or something, or they're very reliant upon manage, their managing agents. And we all know all the issues of managing agents who generally aren't providing a good, like a good enough, anywhere near a good enough service um, for residents. So, I don't think it's a bad thing that more housing stock is coming out of the hands of those mom and pop investors. Um, and that's who we typically um, see ourselves like transferring stock from those mom and pop. We're not, we're not trying to, first of all, we are never bidding above the market. So we are, you know, we're never going to be the emotional buyer that, so if someone really loves a property and they want to live in it themselves, they're going to be paying the highest price, right? So we, you know, we're not competing with them on that. So we're not taking properties away from, from owner occupiers or first time buyers or anything. We see ourselves more sort of sweeping up the stock that's typically coming. We'd be going to the mom and pop, um, landlords, um, market, and then, actually investing in those properties and bringing them up to standards and providing not only a product but also the service that um, consumers deserve. Mm -hmm. And how, how, how do you think it compares with other markets like you, you've mentioned Germany and I know um, you guys do quite a, quite a bit over there how, how, how do you think the UK compares to somewhere like Germany in terms of the PRS? Um, so it's definitely a bit further behind the curve. So Germany in general has a higher percentage of people renting. Um, renting is just more um, cultural. People people rent over there for their entire lives. Um, so it's, it's not it's, got the stigma that it has here. No, not at all. Not at all. Often you'd go into someone's home in Germany, you'd never know they were renting because they've been there for twenty years. They go buy the kitchen and things like that and get a. Yeah, sell. exactly. So they've really personalised property to them to themselves. Um, you you really wouldn't know. Um, so I think, but we're seeing the shifts in the UK of um, increasing uh, numbers, increasing percentages of renters. Um, in terms of from a professional market as well, um, there's it's obviously a lot more professionalized, there's a lot more professional investors um, into the resi space in Germany. Um, and I think that's that's definitely starting to change now, although it's, it's many years behind um, in the UK. But yeah, hopefully the professionalization of the residential sector in, in, in the UK will actually be a good thing. And you can see in Germany as well, there's a lot of a lot of protectionism for um, people who rent. There's, you know, rent controls and things like that. So, and I think that's just sort of part of a natural evolution of, um, you know, where the sector has become more professional. Um, I know people generally are terrified of rent control being brought into, into the UK. And, but it's, it's, I mean, what we found, it's not a scary thing from an investment perspective. You know, you have a framework, you operate within it. Um, and again, we identify properties that still allow us to meet our target returns whilst operating within those, within those rules and regulations. Um, I think it's, you know, 
anything that protects the consumer and makes sure that they're given a better stand, like fairer treatment is, you know, we're, we're very supportive of that. And also, I think to a point, it's that kind of legislation adds barrier to entry for smaller players coming in and helps the bigger players take up more market share and therefore become even more professional because they can do things at higher economies of scale. Um, it's certainly what we found. It's, it's look, if you, if you want to own one or two investment residential properties, it's probably not the market. There's probably better things to invest in. But if you want to actually scale up and, and do this professionally, yes, by all means, crack on. It's kind of the, I suppose, the the silent message that's going around really. Yeah, um, I think also the technology hasn't been developed sufficiently um, where it doesn't matter if you own 10 units or you own a thousand units, you can still manage your processes efficiently. Um, so yeah, maybe I think that's potentially one of the evolutions of MO in the future, if we've developed our technology sufficiently to potentially be able to spin it out and um, yeah, be able to offer it as a, bit more of a SaaS platform to other people but that's much further down the line yeah well let us know if you do I'd be very interested um what what would you say some of the key metrics are that you look at um when 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 looking at sort of some of these investment properties what are are some of the things that that are kind of non-negotiable or would you say are the first metrics you want to look at I think in terms of the non-negotiables that we we obviously have hard hard um sort of parameters um, of what we're looking for. And that, that varies for different countries, different cities, and that depends upon what we've agreed and defined up front with our, with our investor partners. Um, so those are definitely sort of hard, hard filters that we're looking at. Um, as I said before as well, we're looking to make sure that a building is... Um, you know, well-managed or isn't going to create sort of lots of, have lots of legacy issues downstream. Um, Those are also red flags for us that uh, we pull out of. And then from a financial perspective, it really comes down to um, what is the IRR and the cash on cash on on the investment. Um, We're not, we don't have this fixed leakage number. You know, we have obviously, we have, you know, we have quite healthy um, sort of leakage numbers across the portfolio, but from an asset specific basis, you know, our, there's obviously quite a bit of variance within the, within the portfolio. But to us, that doesn't really matter because as long as we've correctly forecast all of that upfront yeah. and factored that into our underwrite day one and the price we paid day one reflects that, um, you know, and we are still getting the target return that we need to for the, for that asset um, and the portfolio. Why does it matter if one asset has, I don't know, 25% leakage? Actually, there's another asset in the portfolio that has 10% leakage, Um, you know, and they sort of offset each other. And that's also the beauty of having such a dispersed grant in a portfolio is um, as long as the assets are ultimately meeting the financial returns, the variance within asset by asset they sort of blend each other out and uh, as i said before it's like you're, you're, it's the diversification element of it sure and and, and it, it, i guess it goes back to that long-term income because if you're looking at an irr but i don't know you've got to do nine months worth of work to the asset um and you're only going to hold it for two years then it's probably going to be a bit difficult but if you're looking at holding these long term then actually putting that capex in at the beginning 
um, become so more meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And on average, I think our cap um, from acquisition to income producing, we're averaging less than three months at the moment. Okay. And what about kind of debt levels? Are you guys taking on debt on these properties? What are your thoughts on that at the moment with, with the general market? Um, and, and how does that work with you and your investors? Um, yeah, so our, we have a sort of a range of different investors. Some of them are a bit more core plus, some of them are a bit more core. Um, so our LTV levels range sort of from 30 to 65%. Um, obviously, at the lower leverage ends, they're less impacted by the rising debt costs. Um, so at the slightly higher end of the LTVs, we're maybe having to move down our LTV um, percentages um, as the debt costs rise, just to make sure that we're, um, <clears throat> excuse me, just to make sure that we're sort of maintaining healthy um, ICR buffers. But it's, um, but what's, what's good is that the banks are still very, the banks that we're speaking with and working with, they're still very keen to be accessing the resi space. Obviously, there's huge amounts of um, uncertainty at the moment. And, um, you know, not just on the lending side, but also on the, um, the investor side. Um, but I think what is unanimous across everyone is that medium long-term residential is absolutely um, the safest, most resilient, um, reliable asset class to be putting money into. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, especially when you've got kind of inflation um, at one level and your cost of debt being so far below, it just seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Mm. If you can get debt at kind of three... 3% at the moment and, uh, and inflation is running at, I think it came out at 9.1% today. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not a bad thing um, for those of us who are able to get that debt and fix it for a long, a long term. Um, that's fantastic. That's really, really interesting and, and great to talk to you. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about IMO, where is uh, the best place for them to go? Um, so they can go to our website, imo.capital. Um, they can also have a look at our LinkedIn page. We've got quite a few um, sort of articles, I think, that are frequently getting published. And we, we, we also post them online as well. So have a, have a look there. And, um, yeah, if um, investors are keen to discuss um, any deployment opportunities, I'm always happy to chat to anyone. And my, my email is samantha.kemp at imo.capital. Fantastic, and I'll make sure I uh, put some links in the show notes for that as well. Thank you very much, Samantha. It's been absolutely fantastic and uh, really looking forward to what Imo is going to be doing in the future. Thanks so much, Rod.